Welcome to the Meta Podcast, the podcast of the European Environmental Bureau, bringing you good news for a world where people and nature thrive together. You are listening to the second episode of the series Modeling a Net Zero Future, and together we are going to follow our path in a world of scientific modeling. I am Marie Medibrin, and I am delighted to be with you on this journey. In the last episode, we talked about models. If you forgot, or if you are still unclear about models, uh, do not worry, we'll talk more about that during this podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a very important and specific element of modeling, which is us, humans. We are going to talk about the different scenarios for a better future and how humans have to be considered in these scenarios. For this episode, we welcome Robert Oaks. Hello, Robert. Thank you very much. You are a teacher, an academic, and you are working on the development of the model called William. And we are going to talk about this model more in depth today. In a sentence, can you remind us what are models? Basically, a model is a simple representation of a system. In the context of a climate change model, we try and represent the environment, the economy and the society to better understand what is happening and what might happen in the future. So if I understood correctly, so from the last podcast, models present path that we can choose to take or not take, depending on the interests and objectives of the decision makers. And if I understood this correctly, policymakers do use models quite a lot to decide on policies uh, that are linked, in this case, to climate change, but I guess there are other models linked to other elements of policymaking, right? Exactly. So in theory, and we hope that policy responds to science. So it's science's job to produce interesting and useful, as you state, models that can project what might happen in the future. And to a greater or lesser extent, policymakers will respond to what a model will show. And this gives them a kind of confidence of what may occur. And this gives a justification for a policy. And also, importantly, justification for expenditure. Because if we're being realistic, sometimes it comes down to the input of expenditure and what will come out in terms of benefits, and these are often economic benefits, but not always. When I was trying to understand what are models, I was given an example. Um, so just going to repeat it so for the listeners. There are some models you have an objective at the beginning. For example, I want to stop the rise of temperature to 1.5 degrees. And then the model will show suge suggestion, I want to say, but I'm not sure it's with the right term, uh, saying you need X amount of wind energy and you need X amount of solar energy, etc., to achieve this stop of this halt of uh, rise of temperature. This is a, one type of models, but there are different types, right? And William is a different one. Okay, so generally a model can give us different pathways to achieve objectives. So as you said, mm -hmm. at the moment, within the climate change world, we have this idea of attempting to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. I think it's not going to happen, actually. But a model can give us different pathways, different ways of... Um, using, as you say, energy, for example. Now, the William model, which we use in locomotion, within limits integrated assessment model, the integrated is the idea of putting together a series of mini models. So we have a model on the environment, one on the economy, one on energy use, for example. And we also have a module on society, and we're linking together these models to see how they interact and ultimately how we can hopefully achieve 1.5 degrees. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's like using a model 
as a puzzle to make sure that all of the elements of the puzzle are still uh, developing as they should without, uh, for example, I'm thinking of the policies with the, in France with the yellow vest. When we had this movement going against um, policies that were actually unfair and that, then that were not taking into account people's reality. So with this model, we're trying to avoid that, right? That's definitely part of it. So um, as I mentioned, the name of the model is Within Limits. Mm -hmm. So it's a model that considers limits. Now, the way that we consider these limits, we think firstly about environmental limits, and these are sometimes called the planetary boundaries. And these include things like climate change, biodiversity loss, probably the most uh, famous ones, but also social limits. So when you talk about the yellow vests, of course, a particular policy that doesn't consider wider impacts on society isn't going to be sustainable in the long term, because we need to think about economy, society and the environment together. Mm -hmm. And this model is supposed to be used by policymakers. How do you make sure that they actually take into consideration your, uh, your scientific data with the model? But also, how do you make sure that they take the decisions with the best interest in mind? This is always something that you can't control, right? Yes, on the second point, of course, we could give our recommendations, but I think it's not the scientist's job to say what the kind of moral mm -hmm. solution would be. The, the scientists and researchers provide um, new data, new models, new projections of what may happen. And it's the policymaker's job to interpret those. Of course, we have our ideas of what should happen, but ultimately the policymakers hopefully will listen to us and um, make informed decisions. That's, that's the idea of combining the interface of science and policy, really. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've heard a lot about the informed decision part rather than the best decision, because I think I tend to say the best decision possible, but it's, it doesn't really exist. Um, so far, what are you thinking of... of Yes, of the impact of those models. I know the William model specifically is not finished, so we don't have uh, results from it. But other models, did you see some good example in the past of how they were applied? So the sorts of models that we produce, integrated assessment models, these type of models have been very influential in the past. And that's through the UNFCCC, the climate change negotiations, but also the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So that's the data and the science that gets collected and interpreted through the United Nations and this forms the basis for policy of the 1.5 target, for example, and it translates into mitigation and adaptation plans for individual states also. So IAMs, Integrated Assessment Models, really are central in driving policy in this way, depending, of course, on how they're interpreted. Mm -hmm. While I was preparing this podcast, what I understood was that there was a need to and a will to recenter um, our society and so policy thinking around uh, people. So, and that maybe from for the moment, policies are thought firstly with the economy in mind. Will this uh, benefit the economy? Will it make sure that? you know, more jobs, more growth, all of this uh, thinking that, that there is a lot around. But with William, what I understand is that the center should always be people and people's well-being. So in this, I understand it was 
health, poverty, food, energy and water security, education, gender aspects, so all of these elements that are indeed very important, and that from this center, the economy should only be a tool to achieve this well-being. Is that, is that how you would put it? Yeah, there are many ways to skin a cat, I suppose. So, of course, ultimately, we're interested in what happens to people. We're interested in society because we're human, but also because society is what conditions the economy. So, until now, some models might explicitly say that they're modelling society, but actually they're modelling the economy and society is kind of tagged on in some way. What we're trying to do is foreground society. And we did this in a number of ways. So first of all, we're trying to have a bit of interaction with policymakers, with stakeholders, to get their perspectives on the risks, the issues that need to be addressed, that need to be modelled. And we're also attempting to really, as you say, include those really important social limits or the sustainable development goals, for example, that directly address society. So as you say, things related to poverty, health, well-being, migration, all of these sort of ideas that until now haven't had a really central role within these sorts of models. And that's something that we're really trying to focus on in this model. And another aspect of uh, people, I think, in the context of climate change is migration. Uh, we see a lot of people having to leave their home, livelihood, because of climate change. And it is uh, said to happen more and more because climate change is not stopping. So can the model also make a scenario that show us how, not, not so much how it impacts people at the moment, because we probably have data about that, but how it will impact people in the near future, depending on which measure we take or not? Yeah, so we do consider migration, and the main emphasis would be on people moving to improve their lives. This is why people move, right? Yes. Sometimes this is an economic reason, and sometimes it's an environmental reason. There are other reasons, of course, but those are the two main ones which are pertinent to, to our research. We are using existing data of observed flows of migration, and we're thinking how this might change and potentially, of course, increase under climate change. I think it's very important to be a little bit sceptical about what a model can say, particularly about migration, because we don't want to contribute to these tropes about how there'll be huge flows of migrants from Africa to Europe, for example. But nonetheless, it is important to use the kind of tools that we have because we are looking at the environment, we are looking at society, we are looking at the economy. It's quite nice to bring these together in terms of what this could mean for flows of human migration. Hmm. What does the model can tell us about the worries linked to overpopulation? Do we have data on that? This is a good question. Um, does overpopulation exist? Perhaps, who knows? I think overpopulation exists when there's a very small enclosed system. So on a particular small island, we can say that there is overpopulation. I would say generally it's not too many people, it's the type of people we have. So instead of framing the conversation about overpopulation, I think what's more important, more realistic, more useful is to think about different forms of development, different forms of sustainable development because this means that we can all live dignified lives where our needs are actually met, instead of thinking about living too many people, and this can have, this can lead to ideas of people thinking the population should be controlled, and of course this 
often gets translated into the global north telling the global south how to live their lives and what they can and can't do in terms of rights of reproduction. Indeed. And do you think that, uh, so it's linked to consumption as well and how the global north is um, over-consuming, etc.? Exactly. So our impact on the environment is, I think it's, you can't really debate, of course, it's population times consumption times technology. And technical fixes, technology can contribute and improve this. Um, but I think more than this, it's a kind of a shift in mindset, which is necessary, a different form of development. And this needs to take place at the individual level, at the corporation level, but also, of course, with policy. I think this is a much more useful way of considering how we can make these changes. And this is something that we are very much trying to do in the William model. In the William model, will there be um, talk about degrowth, post-growth? Yes, yeah, so there are various scenarios which we're actually going to be modeling. So we're talking about, at the moment, we're looking at, I suppose you'd call it business as usual, mm -hmm. the way that we are developing at the moment. But then we have the ability to make different regions of the model. So we have seven different regions in the model. And we have the ability to make these regions follow slightly different pathways. Or we could move as one towards... Um, a green growth, which is not so different to what we're doing at the moment. So it's mainly focused on economic growth, but a, a little bit of a sustainable way using taxation, for example, to, to change the emphasis on, on growth. Or there could be the Green Deal, which the EU is attempting to roll out, and the USA is, will perhaps be doing something rather similar in the future also. This is a more holistic form of development whereby the environment is given a little bit more status, um, almost level with the economy, I suppose. Um, and post-growth, as you mentioned, is a very interesting concept, a steady state whereby economic growth isn't seen as the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to have, going back to what we mentioned earlier, this kind of not impinging on the limits, environmental limits, but most importantly, not on societal limits. So it's about having well-being for society, people leading dignified lives, um, perhaps universal basic income, full employment. This is, we, it's important to model these things because at the moment perhaps it's not politically possible. If we can model it, we can show that if and how this could work and it can contribute to these narratives, these discourses about how we can move to something that works for everyone, including the environment. How different do you imagine the path for each of these regions? Because I guess not everyone has the same needs in terms of development of infrastructure or in terms of uh, yeah, different elements. How do you make sure that um, all of the needs of everyone is covered? In short, you cannot do that. <laughs> um, I think with the model, it's important to, to consider what might happen what is probable, but also kind of some thought-provoking experiments also. So, as I mentioned, the, the EU and the United States might be moving towards a form of Green Deal. Can we say that the developing world, the global south, can and should follow this pathway? Is it realistic for them to do so at the moment? Perhaps not. So this is it's quite nice to have this flexibility where we can say that 
in Europe we might have this pathway, in China they might be following another pathway, in India likewise. So this flexibility means that the model can be more realistic, but also I think the idea of showing what could happen can really help drive debates within academia, but more importantly within the policy also. Mm, indeed. Uh, so we, we're just coming out, still coming out of uh, quite a crazy summer with a lot of heat waves. I was in France, a lot of fires everywhere, um, quite de devastating, no, no water in the rivers, etc. Um, and now we're coming into a winter which is being told will be a gigantic uh, energy crisis. And yeah, we're expecting a lot, of, a lot of problems this winter. What can we expect from such models to, to maybe try to mitigate these, these elements and find solutions? So an integrated assessment model is useful in looking at these wider trends, certainly. In terms of shocks, it's a little bit more difficult because if you're projecting what may happen in the future, you don't really want to model a shock because the whole system gets disrupted. Of course, with the energy crisis, this is what's happening, but to predict and project when that will or if that will happen is a bit problematic. Nonetheless, the tools within the model mean that we can play around with energy prices and we can show what does happen under these circumstances. But to predict when these crises will happen is a bit difficult. So I suppose in general terms we can see the impact on a shift in energy use, a shift in energy supply, and how this plays out for the consumer or for society in a more general sense. And of course we can see that this would have a pretty devastating impact on well-being and health and potentially on employment and the knock-on impacts of this as well. Mm. Actually, the project started before uh, COVID-19 happened. What were, were the consequences in your, in your modeling, in your thinking, uh, seeing such a shock as well of a pandemic, every, everything stops, everyone stays home, etc.? I suppose this is a kind of similar issue. So it probably just gives a bit more emphasis to modeling certain aspects. So okay. It's contributed to a wider definition of well-being and this idea of working from home is something that is um, included more in the economy module. Um, and also in terms of health, it gave us, it kind of reminded us of the importance of including health and the way that we interpret that and trying to make that feedback into the model. But modeling a specific disaster like this is kind of difficult, again, if we're kind of projecting into the future, we don't want to say that this can and will happen in 2027, who knows, it might happen again, but it's not useful for the model to do so. But it can show us how the knock-on impacts of changes in the economy, impacts on society, how changes in society impacts on the economy, and also how these relate to the environment also. To finish, I would like to ask you a question that is more um, lower level because we've been talking about policymakers, decisions, policies, etc. But how does the model take into consideration personal decisions, meaning people becoming vegetarians, people deciding to drop the cars using the bikes? How is that um, taken into consideration by the model? 
because it's a large scale model, it's a little bit difficult to look at individual decisions in agency. But what we do is we basically can run probability on a particular um, decision, a particular change in behavior. Um, one quite interesting aspect is looking at diets. So what we're trying to do is interpret a diet which is sustainable in terms of the limits that we've mentioned. So a diet that doesn't lead to impinging on the planetary boundaries, but also that kind of works culturally. So it doesn't involve huge shifts away from the um, content of protein that mm -hmm. people seem to want and need. And we are able to model this to see how just what a massive impact this could have on the environment. Um, because as, as you may know, the, the sheer amount of meat, particularly red meat, has the impact it has on the environment is pretty catastrophic. And if we could produce some nice data showing the impact that this would have, and of course feeding back into the model through, through the economy and society, it might be able to convince policymakers to really push for this shift that would um, get us a little bit closer to this target, 1.5 degrees. It is so probably linked to the health of people because a lot of studies have shown that uh, red meat, for example, is not necessarily beneficial. Um, so even just from a health point of view, decision makers might be interested in uh, trying to cut that down for people. Exactly. I think this would be so beneficial for the environment and for society in terms of health and well-being. Um, I think what's important is to kind of connect these to the economy and make sure that for the producers and the consumers, the people who are eating the food, that it's worked for them because then it makes it yeah. more possible and more likely to actually happen. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for your time and all of your answers, Robert. Uh, I understand that you would be in the COP presenting the model um, in the near future. What can we expect from, uh, from the presentation? Yes, exactly. So I'll be in Sharm El Sheikh and we have a session on Friday the 11th of November at 11.30. And the whole session is actually about climate migration and human rights. And within that session, I'll be talking a little bit about the locomotion approach, the ideas that we've been talking about, about foregrounding society and particularly our approach to modeling human migration. So it should be very exciting and it'll be live streamed if you go through the UNFCCC website. So either see you there or online, I hope. Amazing. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This was the Meta Podcast. The episode was funded by the European Union Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme under the grant agreement number A21105. Thank you very much for listening and talk to you soon.